the title of this series is From the Seed to the Tree. We are going to trace the seed promise that God gave first to Adam, and then to Abraham, and then to David, and then to Mary. So we're going to trace the seed from Eve to Mary to the cross in these four Focus Sundays. And this morning we're looking uh, especially at the beginning of the seed promises. We find it in Genesis chapter 3. And so we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Genesis 3, 1 through 21. And what is arguably the most important chapter in the Bible, uh, our God having created our first parents and having put them in that garden paradise, having, having put them there to reflect his image and having given Adam that role as prophet, priest, and king in the garden sanctuary, um, they are there to expand the garden and to take it out and to turn the entire world into the garden temple in which righteous image bearers worship. And, and yet, you know what happens here in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Moses tells us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we know that this is Satan from the rest of the scriptures, and the book of Revelation calls him that, that great serpent of old. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and His wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I want us to focus especially on this verse this morning. I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's not a good thing, by the way. Verse 16. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. Until You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever well. Many of us, no doubt all of us, when we think about Christmas, have a tendency to think about things that are peaceful. There's something... There's something inherently peaceful about the idea of Christmas. Um, when I was a child, I would eagerly go to the window of our home in Philadelphia, and I would look out to see if it had snowed on Christmas morning, and many times it had, and there was a sense of peacefulness looking out at that snow and the quiet that was outside. And some of us have sentimentalized Christmas in an unhelpful way. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a short treatise about why he didn't like Christmas, and, and he didn't like the commercial racket of it. He didn't like the, just the sentimentalizing of it. And yet there is something built into the idea of Christmas and the coming of Christ that brings with, with it the idea of peacefulness. So much so, and many of you probably know this, on December 24th and December 25th, of 1914, right there, um, six or so months after World War I had begun, um, there was an involuntary, unofficial, impromptu ceasefire where everyone put their weapons down. They, they believed that uh, the spirit of Christmas, if we can say that, that the thought of Christ coming into the world must necessarily bring about the cessation of war. Now, there is one sense in which that's true, and there's another sense in which Christmas is all about war. Now, you you may say, what? There's one sense in which the coming of Christ into the world was to bring peace. We sing that in our hymns. It was declared by the angels to the shepherds, uh, good tidings of peace and joy. And yet there's another sense that that peace and joy is wrought through the coming of Christ as a conqueror to enter into hand-to-hand battle with the evil one. In fact, the very first prophecy of the coming of Christ is here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God has come and he has come to pronounce a curse and a judgment on his creatures, each in the order in which they had rebelled against him. And in that pronouncement on the serpent, he is pronouncing the coming of a seed, a redeemer, who is going to come. And what is he going to do? He is going to come to crush the head of the serpent, even while he himself has his heel bruised. Now, I want us to consider this morning as we enter in on this short series on that seed promise in Scripture, which is the promise of the coming Redeemer, I want us to consider three things. First, the need for a conquering seed. 
I want us to then consider the promise of a conquering seed, and then I want us to consider the work of the conquering seed. The need for, the promise of, and the work of the conquering seed. Well, why, why do we even celebrate a coming Redeemer? Why do we need Christ to come into the world? Well, Genesis 3 sets that out for us, right? Our first parents had been created in the image of God. They had been created magnificent beings. They had been created to reflect, if you would have looked on them, the purpose of their existence was in looking on them, you would in them see an image of the very God who had created them. That's, that's God's original intention for humanity. That when men and women look on other men and women, they would have seen the very image of God who had created them in those beings. They would have seen it in their moral capacities, in what they knew about God, in, in holiness, and in righteousness, and in goodness, and in, in uprightness. We can't even begin to imagine what an unfallen world would have been like. Um, whatever it was like, it is so diametrically opposed to what it is now. Um, there would have been a radiance about Adam. You know, when Moses goes up into the mountain, and he comes down, and his face is shining with the reflected glory. One old theologian, Thomas Boston, said that, that Adam would have had this effulgence and this glory emanating off of him because he was constantly in the presence of God, sinless and like God. And remember, God had commissioned him to keep that temple holy. He had told him to guard and to keep the garden. Those were words used of the priest later in the temple. He was to keep anything unclean out. He was to protect the wife that God had, had given him and had built for him and from him. Um, he was to, with her, bring forth righteous image bearers. Um, and, and as the vine that he was in the garden would have grown, as that vine would have expanded and offshoots would have come out, there would have been a righteous vine filling the earth of, of image bearers, worshiping and serving God, loving one another, reflecting his glory, keeping what God had entrusted to them, and living exclusively for him. Um, and yet we know that no sooner had God created them that there is a conflict, and an enemy came into the camp. Notice verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, he went, he bypassed Adam because he knew God had entrusted spiritual care of Eve to Adam. And in his shrewdness, he goes to the woman and and he misrepresents the character of God, doesn't he? He misrepresents the word of God. He, he calls into question the goodness of God. He calls into question the wisdom of God. He, he, he subtly leads Eve to think that somehow God is depriving her of something. That even though God had said, of everything that you see, I've given all of it to you, but that you may know that you are a creature and I am the creator, one tree you may not eat. But in the day you eat of it and dying, you will die. All the goodness of God. And yet the evil one questioned that goodness and that wisdom and the rightness. And he led Eve to think that she could be God. 
apart from God. You're going to become like God. Um, C.S. Lewis reflecting on John Milton's Paradise Lost and what Milton, what Milton says of Eve and of the fall and the temptation and all that happens. Lewis, writing a preface to that, reflecting on it, said that the essence of Eve's disobedience is that she, she bowed low to a vegetable. She worshipped a vegetable rather than the God in whose image she had been made. And, and then she led her husband into the same sinfulness. And then all of humanity became exactly like them, and the knowledge of God is lost. Notice that's the first thing, the knowledge of God is lost. Men by nature, we by nature, do not know God. We are unreconciled to God by nature. How do I know that? Because the second Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves. When God came pursuing, when, when the missionary God came pursuing Adam, and God knows where he is, and God knows what he has done. God has ordained all things, but God comes to draw out of Adam that confession of sin, and, and Adam has lost the knowledge of God because no sooner does he hear the sound of the Lord, he hides himself, and that's what we do by nature. We hide ourselves from God. We find a thousand ways to hide from God. We spend our lives hiding behind sin, and self-righteousness, and money, and a thousand different things, just like Adam hid behind something he should have known couldn't hide him. Have you ever thought of that? Adam is hiding behind something God has created as if God can't see through all things and doesn't fill all things and know all things and see all things. Adam and Eve have for us and for all mankind lost the knowledge of God. That is, that is why we need a conquering seed. Um, Adam and Eve's relationships have been torn apart when God has given Adam an opportunity to confess what he's done and, and to confess freely and to cry out for mercy. Instead, he blames Eve and then Eve, when she is given that opportunity, blames the serpent. And we're very good at blaming, aren't we? We're all very good at blaming. I often catch myself explaining to someone when I've done something sinful, well, you know, if this had not happened, no. Even if that had happened, um, that's no reason to embrace sin. That's no excuse for sinfulness. Um, our relationships are marred, and that's why we need a conquering seed. Um, everything is marred. I heard an illustration once that, that the image of God in Adam and Eve was like a, a Baroque painting, a masterpiece that had been totally defaced because of the fall. And that the work of redemption is to restore what was defaced. To do it in our relationship with God and to do it in our relationships with one another. To stop hiding from God, to be reconciled to God, 
and to have our relationships healed. Um, that's why we need the conquering seed. Um, now, I want us to consider the promise of the conquering seed. Now, notice, as I've already pointed out here, that when God comes to bring that confrontation and that judgment towards his creatures who have sinned against him, who have rebelled against him, he, ha- he comes to them in the order in which they have rebelled. He comes first to Satan, he comes then to the woman, and then he comes to the man. And it's important that when we see this, God is dealing with the one who had led our first parents into rebellion. And that's significant. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, as we meditate on Christmas and Christ coming into the world, the Son of God being manifested, and I asked you, tell me, why did Christ come into the world? I would venture to say, most of you would say, to save us, to forgive us, to take our sins upon himself, and those would all be right answers. Um, Some of the more philosophically minded people would say to bring God glory, and that is the big answer, yes. But I would venture to say most of us would not say to destroy the works of the evil one, and yet that's what John says in 1 John 3, 8, for this reason the Son of God was manifested that he may destroy the works of the evil one. Now, the works of the evil one directly correspond to our need for redemption, salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, the removal of the wrath of God, because he led our first parents into rebellion. And so it's interesting and important for us when we think about that promise of redemption and that that God has promised to send Christ into the world, that we would first and foremost recognize that he is going to come to deal with the one who conquered man. Uh, One old theologian said, said in that seed promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, God was promising to send one who would conquer the one who would conquer man because by nature you have been conquered. By nature, we have all been conquered. We are born conquered. That's why we don't do those things we want to do. It's why we do those things we don't want to do. Um, You know, I sometimes fear that we in Reformed theological circles, in especially a scientific, post-scientific, technological age, don't think enough about spiritual realities, spiritual warfare. Um, The reason that this world is as it is is because the evil one has broken in and led God's image bearers into rebellion. Um, It's remarkable to me that everyone can't recognize that in this world. The media can't figure out why someone would drive their car into a parade and kill people. The media can't figure out why somebody would go out and commit mass murder. There's a very simple answer. The whole world, John says, lies under the sway of the evil one. Um, And unless he is dealt with, first and foremost, 
the other needs that we have can't be dealt with. Um, a number of years ago, when we were living in Savannah, we, we had a spider that decided it would be a good idea to put a spider web right in front of the walkway out of our door, of all places on our property. And, and for several weeks, I just was sort of doing the limbo and going under it. I don't know if you've ever done that. I was too lazy to deal with it, so I'm going out in the morning with bags trying to just jettison under it because there is nothing worse than getting a cobweb in the face. Amen? <laughs> and, and I did that for a number of days, maybe a week and a half, and then I was like, this is ridiculous. I cannot keep doing this. So I went and got a broom, and I knocked down the spider web, and the next day, the spider web was up again. And I got the broom, and I knocked it down, and the next day it was up again. And then after a number of days doing this, I thought, I just have to kill the spider. I killed the spider. No more cobwebs. No more problem. The cobwebs are our sin. The spider is the evil one, and he must be dealt with because he is the one that brought sin and rebellion into the world. And so the, the, the Lord deals here in verse 15 when he is pronouncing judgment on the serpent. And it's interesting, the first promise of redemption comes in God's statement to the evil one for what he has done. And instead of saying, hey, you know what? Let's make a deal. You get out of here. Leave these people alone. He says, I am going to put enmity, warfare, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Now, um, there is so much here in this passage. Um, while Satan has a sort of cruel joy over the triumph that he has brought, God is now bringing that indictment of warfare. Um, the living God, the infinite God, is saying, I am going to enter into warfare with you. I am going to conquer you. And fascinatingly, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, he is telling the evil one, he is telling the evil one the very thing that he's going to hate the most. That it's not going to be God as God in the divine nature, per se, that's going to conquer him. But it's going to be God coming as man, the very object of Satan's hatred, who he led astray in jealousy and envy and malice and pride because he believed that being an angelic being, he was worthy of more of God's love and honor than mankind. And so God says, I am going to take to myself flesh and become altogether like those that you led astray in rebellion. And I am going to become a servant of the Lord himself as the Lord in the flesh. There's nothing that Satan could have hated more to hear. He thought he had destroyed God's plan for humanity. And yet God says, and we read this, don't we, in Hebrews chapter 2, just as the children have flesh and blood, he himself has likewise taken the same, shared in the same, that he who through death might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death all their lifetime were subject to bondage. How, how is Satan going to be conquered? Well, in this first promise 
God is promising that there is going to be the son of a woman. And he's not going to be created in, in, in the, the ethereal spheres. He's not, going to be, he's not going to be specially created. He is going, and we know this to be God himself, but he is going to be conceived in the womb of the virgin. Now, why is that important? Why is it important? Why, beyond the fact that he must be supernaturally God and man, sinless, not inheriting the sin of an earthly father like all of us have inherited from our sinful parents, but beyond that, why is it so important that he must be knit together in the womb of the virgin? Because it was the woman that Satan had first led astray in rebellion, and it would be through the woman that God has now promised there would be redemption. Isn't that marvelous? How perfectly our God weaves together every single thing he does. You could not have ever come up with that. I could never have come up with that. And he does it by himself. Notice those words. These are some of the most important words in the scripture. Notice verse 15, the first two words, I will. He doesn't call his conquered people to do anything. There's nothing they can do. It must be freely by his grace. It must be freely in accord with his mercy. It must be entirely done by him. I will put enmity. I will do this. And he is essentially saying, I will win the battle. I will conquer the one who conquered my people. There is a really great hymn um, in which these words are found, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood, which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the flow, should strive and should prevail. That's That's what God is promising. There's going to be another Adam. There's going to be one single Redeemer. And and throughout all of redemptive history, think of this, from this first announcement that our first parents heard after the rebellion and after all that they lost in this first announcement of the gospel, God is saying, I'm going to send another Adam, a second Adam, and he's going to undo what Adam did. He's going to do everything Adam should have done. And, and that man, that man is going to conquer the evil one. And, and he's going to do it for his people. He's going to gather together. The, the seed, though, here, the woman's seed is singular in the Hebrew because it is Christ. Even though, though it is singular, it also carries the idea of a collective nature, that it's the one and the many, that he is not going to do it for himself, he is going to do it for others, that he is going to unite to himself. He is going to substitute himself for them. We'll come back to that, and yet that promise, that promise is going to run through the rest of the Old Testament. Sinclair Ferguson said once, if you could put a red line through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and trace it from this point of that seed promise to that glorious victory in the cosmic spheres that we see at the end of the Bible, that it's all running through Scripture, holding it together. 
He's also put it this way. He said, you know, Genesis 3.15 is sort of a footnote. Oh, the rest of the Bible is sort of a footnote to Genesis 3.15. The rest of the Bible is a footnote to this verse. It's all growing out of it like an acorn into a tree. Um, And every generation should have been hoping for the fulfillment of that promise. They didn't know what we know. They probably knew far more than we think they did. But really, every generation of believing Israelite women who had a male child should have been asking them the question, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? When is the promised seed going to come? That human history is structured by this. Not just, this is not just religiosity. This is human history is formed for the seed of the woman who would come into the world. Um, We see that conflict, don't we? The enmity against it. Satan is constantly trying to destroy that seed in the Old Testament, isn't he? All the enemies of Israel, right? When God had carried that seed promise through Abraham and into Israel and set apart a people for himself from whom the Redeemer would come. And the nations are raging and Satan is trying to destroy. And the story of Esther, remember, where Haman tried to destroy all the Jews. What was behind that? The evil one was trying to eradicate the promised seed, the Redeemer who was going to conquer the one who had conquered man. And, and all the oppression of the Babylonians the oppression of the Egyptians far before that at the beginning of Israel's history, all of it was an attempt of Satan to destroy the promised seed. And then Christ comes. And remember Herod's malice in destroying all the baby boys, two years old and under. What is that about? Satan trying to destroy the promised seed. And yet it's futile. And you know why it's futile? Because God said, I will, and he will. All of the malice of Satan aimed at the church in the Old Testament, aimed at Christ in the Gospels, aimed at the church today, is futile because God has promised, I will, and he will. And it is guaranteed that he would do what was promised so long before. Now, that's good news. That means that we can have great consolation and hope, even if the world around us looks like it's raging to hell, if it rages against the church. God's promises will never fail. The gospel will always have the success God wants it to have. Christ will have the glory that he came into this world for, And he will redeem every single person for whom he came. I think it was Edward Donnelly, the Irish preacher and theologian, who once said, if just one of the elect for whom Christ came into the world to die and to redeem was not in heaven, then heaven would not be heaven. I want you to think of that. The absolute guarantee that every single one the Father gave the Son, for whom the Son came into the world to redeem, will be with the Son forever, having conquered the evil one. Now, how does he do it? We've already 
begun? What is the work? What is the work of this conquering seed? Well, um, very interesting. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the language of utter destruction. That's the language of victory to such an extent that there is no coming back. And, and yet in the process, Genesis 3.15 says that he would have his heel bruise. That's the language of a wound that you heal from. And, and as we look at the unfolding of redemptive history, and, and, and when the seed comes, he comes and faces off in battle array against the evil one there in the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. He's weak, he's tired, he's hungry, he's worn, and yet he resists the temptations of Satan where Adam and Eve had not resisted them. That's the first step in how he does what he came to do. The whole of the life of Christ is part of his work as the second Adam in the promised seed. And, and where Eve looked at the tree and it was, it was pleasant to the eyes and it was, it was uh, delightful to eat and it was uh, good to make wise, Jesus looked at those same temptations, the temptation to throw himself off uh, the, the, the cliff and to show himself off pride and, and, and to turn stones into bread to, to please his flesh and, and to see all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory, the lust of the eyes. He resists those same temptations. And then he casts out demons. And he begins to overthrow the kingdom of Satan until he is nailed to the tree. And ultimately, it's on that tree that he disarms principalities and powers. It's on that tree that he guarantees the renewal of his own image in his people. It's on that tree that he takes the penalty for the guilt and the power of the sin of his people. It's on that tree that he sheds his blood to secure the new heavens and the new earth in which there is righteousness. He is going to do what Adam should have done, and he's going to undo what Adam did. And he's going to do it perfectly. And he's going to do it in such a way that he totally crushes the head of the evil one. Now, you might ask, are you saying that Satan is inactive today? No, he is very active, but he has already been conquered. Is he already not yet? He is already bound. Um, there are, there are two, two main ways that he's already been conquered and bound. The first is that the gospel now can go to the nations. That's one of the reasons we should have great confidence in worldwide missions and support it and pray for it and give to it because Christ has merited the gospel going to the nations, and he has limited Satan's ability to keep the nations in darkness forever. Isn't that marvelous? How do I know that the gospel will go to Muslim countries that are almost entirely under the sway of the evil one because Christ has already conquered to save a people out of those nations? And Satan is limited and bound in his ability to keep the gospel from triumphing where Christ wants it to. That's a glorious thought for the, the proclamation of this message to go out. By the way, what does Satan hate more than anything? This message. Because this is the message that has defeated him 
for the good news to go out to the nations that God is freely redeeming a people, freely forgiving a people, freely reconciling a people. What did Adam and Eve give up in the garden? They hid from God. They, they, they had a breach in their relationship with God. And God is saying, I have come to restore that. I have come to reconcile a people to myself, a people who were living in hostility against me. I have come. I have bled for them and died for them. I have substituted myself for them. And I have done it to bring them home to God. Isn't that awesome? Victory over Satan is seen in the gospel proclamation bringing spiritually dead men and women into a living relationship with the God against whom we've sinned. There is a second way that his work is seen and his victory over Satan is seen, and that is that he has taken away the weapons that the evil one especially uses against believers. You know, the Puritans wrote many books on spiritual warfare, and this is a, such a vital component in many of them. Uh, one of the chief things that, that Satan loves to do is accuse us when we've sinned. I have felt that in my soul many times, that you can't really be a Christian because you've done this again. Um, Now, we should listen to our consciences when we are convicted, and yet we should also go back to the Savior who has already atoned for us. We should confess our sins. We should pray for grace for cleansing. We should pray for power for healing because he has He has gained all of that in his death on the cross so that Satan has no power over you to hold you in fear of death. Don't miss that. The writer of Hebrews again said that Christ took flesh and blood to himself, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So that if you're in Christ... You can have all the joy and assurance that he has fully paid for all your sins, that he has taken away Satan's weapons of accusing you, even though that's what he loves to do, so that he can try to keep you unfruitful in the service of Christ. You know, I love the words of that hymn that we sing so often, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, Christ has died to conquer Satan to do that for you and me, if you're in him. Now, I want to say this morning as we close and there's so much more that could be said, that, that if I could urge you this morning, if you are not a believer, um, if, if you have never come to see your need for a conquering seed redeemer, who is Christ, that you would take all of this together and that you would meditate deeply on your need for a Savior. This is, what, this is what drives us to the Lord Jesus. When I realize what I am by nature because of Adam, what I realize what God has promised to do and what he has fulfilled and how he has done that, um, 
you know, the more we meditate, and I'll say this to everyone this morning, the more we meditate on the victory that Christ has won over the evil one, the more we want to flee to him personally. Um, he is the protector of our souls. He has redeemed us, and he is going to protect us. He is going to keep us. Remember the Good Shepherd discourse last week. The, the wolf comes to kill and destroy. That's Satan. I have come that they may have a life and have it more abundantly. I'd also say to you this morning, if you're a believer, think about the overwhelming goodness of God. What kind of God does this for people who have so egregiously sinned against him? Now, I said to uh, my group of pastoral band of brothers this week, I sitting out and I said, I said, we don't enough think about the goodness of God, the overwhelming goodness of God, that he doesn't just wipe us out. I think I was looking at a lake and a sunset thinking, what kind of God must this be that allows us to enjoy beauty in a fallen world? More than that, what kind of God must this be that takes the initiative to conquer the one that conquered us, redeem us, heal us, save us, reconcile us, heal our relationships, the breach in our relationships? I want us to meditate often on the goodness of God. And then I want to just encourage you this morning, if you're a believer, think often about Christ as the one who has come conquering and to conquer. We need to think often of the victory of the Lord Jesus. He has been victorious. We are not waiting for the victory. And that means our lives work out from there. We live in light of the victory, not waiting for it. We look back at the people waiting for the promise as they looked forward, but we look back seeing that he has already conquered. What good news that is. That's what Christmas is about. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do need to hear these truths recurrently. Lord, our hearts are often weighed down by the weight of our sin, by the accusations of the evil one, by discouragements as we look at the darkness of the world around us. And yet, Lord, you have promised that you would send a Redeemer, and you have sent him, and you have conquered. And Lord Jesus, you deserve all the glory and the praise. We do pray this morning that your gospel would spread, that many would come to know you from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, that you would display the victory that you have already accomplished over the evil one, and that you would give us more grace when we are being accused, that we would know that you have taken away the weapons that the evil one uses against us. Lord, we do pray that you would remind us of the sufficiency of your sacrifice and that you ever live to make intercession for us, that you represent us as the head of a redeemed and reconciled humanity. We thank you and praise you and pray these things in your name. Amen.